Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. So the brother stood up to say that he's going to give an introduction. I told him I just live like a mile down from North Avenue. Mashallah, they give such an introduction, people think that I came from, from, from a different continent. Do me a favor, grab that desk. They ask if I want to stand or sit. Just put it on the desk. They ask if I want to stand or sit. That when I sit down and give a ban, the ban will end at Fajr. So this is for everybody's, everybody's good. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulihi Sayyidina Muhammad. Wa ala alihi wa ashabihi wa azwajihi wa dhuriyatihi wa ahli baytihi. Wa man tabi'ahum bi ihsanin wa ba'd. So the topic that I was asked to speak about was given the title Scholars of the Subcontinent Spiritual Empire on the Ruins of the State. One of the laments that people have in the time that we live in which is to a certain degree legitimate although it has grown out of size and proportion out of reasonable size and proportion is that the Muslims used to have a sovereign entity or several sovereign entities that used to run, at least in theory, the entire system of the Sharia uh, from top to bottom. In reality, there is nobody after Rasulullah wasallam who can do that properly. Do you understand what I'm saying? Human beings are fallible. Human beings are imperfect. Everybody will have some sort of imperfections. This idea that we have inside of our head that if somehow we have a quote-unquote Islamic government, everything is going to be wonderful and rosy. People who think that way have never read the history of the Muslims before. Weird things like battle and war with the Khawarij, people, civil wars, people fighting each other for political power, the Khalifa, right? The Khalifa of the Muslims imprisoning, jailing, beating, poisoning, assassinating the ulama. Weird things happen. So we have this idea, some of us, we romanticize the idea that somehow if the sovereign state, if there were to be like a, a ruler that says, uh, I am a Muslim and I will rule according to the book of Allah and the sunnah of the Prophet wasallam. that that's going to work out in some sort of ideal fashion. And that's not the case. If you want something ideal, you're looking in the wrong place. Where will you find something ideal? Not in this world. You'll find it in the akhirah. This world, the rule of it, the rule of thumb is saddidu wa qaribu. You know, do as much as you can to fill in the gaps and keep moving closer and closer to your goal and to your ideal. It doesn't mean that we should give up trying to be as good as we can. It doesn't mean that we should ever try to, or we should ever give up trying to get as close to justice as we can. It doesn't mean that we should ever give up trying to improve our own lot and the lot of the ummah of the Prophet ﷺ as much as we can. But this idea that some people have 
that, oh, there's a Khilafah or some sort of state that's like in the, 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 the near or distant future. When that happens, then everything is going to uh, uh, become magic again. The government can't make you pray. The government can't make you fast. The government can't make you be sincere. In fact, in many ways, mashallah, this is a blessing for the student of knowledge that in the old days, what would happen? All of those people who are trying to become doctors and engineers nowadays in order to make money, they were trying to become the qadi, they were trying to become the judge, which involves studying knowledge. So there are, there are a number of people, a number of people that would be in the madrasa, most of whom are smarter than you, that would crowd out, crowd you out in your position in the madrasa. You would have no one to teach, nowhere to study, no one to teach you, none of these things anymore. And those people, God knows what their intentions are. The Madrasa Nizamiya that uh, uh, the Seljuk uh, Vazir Nizamul Mulk funded and set up. It was the first uh, uh, Madrasa in the sense that we think of Madaris nowadays. Um, in the uh, in the time of Imam Ghazali, rahimullah ta'ala. So I believe that's the fourth fourth century after Hijra. That Madrasa Nizamiya, it's a story. I don't know how authentic it is, but it's a story that's told that the Nizamul Mulk, the Seljuk minister who and Vazir who got the funding together and put together all of the, 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 the things needed in order to build that madrasa. One day he came to inspect the, the, the school, right? There's a whole reason why they built that madrasa because the, the, the uh, uh, assassins and other weird bataniya, like other weird uh, groups had spread preachers amongst the Muslims and were corrupting people's faith and ultimately uh, would inflame the people to rebel against the government and it was causing chaos and killing and violence all over the Muslim world so he thought we need to have like a factory that we can crank out people who know enough about the deen to be able to refute these people so what happens is that he makes this madrasa and he visits one day and the students are studying and he asks every one of them why, do you, why are you studying, why are you studying someone, I want to be imam, I want to be a qadi, a judge, right, because in those days the judges were, were very powerful, it was a very p- powerful position, it was both at the same time a position of knowledge, but also it was a political position, the qadi was oftentimes in an in a, in a area more powerful than the local governor was because governors come and go through through political happenings whereas the qadi stayed the same and people didn't respect the governors because they knew that these are politicians but people respected the qadats because they knew these people had ilm so someone says I want to be imam someone wants to be qadi someone wants to be mufti someone wants to be a famous preacher someone wants to be this, that and the other thing and Nizam al-Mulk he thought this was a waste of my time what's the only reason that you're supposed to study knowledge? to make Allah Ta'ala happy with you and pleased with you if you have any other reason that you're studying knowledge, it's a complete waste of time. There are hadith that, are, that Rasulullah narrated in which he describes what the punishment is for those people who learned those sciences that were supposed to be for the sake of Allah Ta'ala for some other reason. So if any of our brothers and sisters are here or at home who also, you know, when people ask, why do you want to become a doctor? They say, well, because I want to like help out and I want to help people and this and that. And you actually just, you know, some point in the future, it became about the money. This is about you as well. Because this is also a knowledge that is sought for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's not supposed to be sought in order to uh, rob the bank or, or whatever, which is what people have inside of their heart oftentimes, even though they may say on their tongue that I want to help people. All of the students said some sort of silly reason that is more worthy of punishment than it is of reward. Only one student said, I want to learn this knowledge for the sake of Allah ta'ala. They say that student was Imam Ghazali. 
He was just a student. Nobody knew he was Ghazali at the time. But he grew up and he became Ghazali. Ghazali ta'ala, was the one who wrote the most systematic refutation of the, the corruption of the Bataniya and, and, and provided the intellectual cornerstone for their, uh, the, the disassembly of their entire da'wah and their entire political movement and their entire uh, 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 corrupt theological movement. So we have this, uh, uh, this idea that the government is going to somehow fix everything. And the fact of the matter is, yes, the Sharia prescribes that when the Muslims get together, they should run their lives in accordance with the law of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and His Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in whatever capacity that they are able to do. So we're here, we're obviously not starting a sovereign government. But for example, if we have civil disputes with one another, if we were sincere, we would have taken those disputes to the ulama rather than taking them to the courts, rather than taking them to the judges. Unfortunately, what happens, the person who thinks he's going to win uh, with, the, with the ulama takes their dispute to the ulama. The moment they realize the ulama are going to judge against them, they go and sue each other in courts. They go and sue each other in, 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 in civil courts and in courts by other than the rule of Allah and His Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Leave it alone. Why? Because of a weakness of iman. That weakness of iman even if the, the court was there, even if the judge was there, even if the entire state was run by God-fearing Muslims that proclaim the Sharia, it's still not going to help. Now tell me something. I agree and I accept and I say everybody must agree and accept that when the Muslims have the ability to run the system according to uh, the hukam of Allah Ta'ala and His Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, it's not merely a recommendation, it's an obligation. It's an obligation for them to do so. And there are certain ways in which we are able to do that right now and we don't. However, as a thought exercise for the students of knowledge, one must ask, what's more important? The establishment of the government or the uh, uh, spiritual teachings of Islam? And the fact of the matter is it's the spiritual teachings. If somebody lives in a context in which they're not able to form a, a quote-unquote sharia government, whatever that means in, in its practical form, if someone's not able to do that, will Allah Ta'ala ask, how come you didn't establish the Ottoman Empire? No, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't burden a soul more than it can bear. No one here has singularly or even when you come together the ability to do that. However, Allah Ta'ala will ask you first about what? Your salat. Allah Ta'ala will ask you about your personal worship. Allah Ta'ala will ask you about your dealings. Allah Ta'ala will ask you about those things that you could have gotten together and done. And if a person inside of their heart has accepted the deen and has purified their heart and brings a pure heart to Allah Ta'ala on the Day of Judgment and they tried their best, that person will make it. That person will be saved. If a person lived under an Islamic state, right? The, it's so strange. Like They like relish in saying this word even though there's nothing Islamic about that movement nor a state. If someone lived in a sovereign Islamic government, but that person, their heart was messed up, they weren't sincere people, they weren't people who were spiritually purified or cleansed, is that going to work for them, Yom Al-Qiyamah? Absolutely not. So we see one of these two things, the, the spiritual teachings of the deen versus the whatever public affairs and governmental structure that the deen assigns. One of these two things is there to support the other. The government is there to support the spiritual life of a Muslim, not the other way around. There are people running around, and with all due respect to them, no matter how sincere they may be, if they don't have correct knowledge, they're going to cause more facade than, 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 than benefit. That say that what? All of the ulama are sellouts. 
Although the ulama are, uh, uh, you know, weak people who are there just to make money and they're under the thumb of tyrants, under the thumb of, of, of governments, under the thumb of wealthy people, etc. And, uh, you know, we're doing the real work of Islam because we're going to establish the caliphate. Say, brother, you don't even know how to make wudu properly. You don't even know tajweed, how to read the Quran. What kind of caliphate are you going to establish? You don't even have the political wherewithal in order to open a, a grocery store. Do you know how much like logistical complexity there is in opening a grocery store? It's not a joke. You have like m- maybe millions of dollars of, 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 of merchandise coming in, going, how much do you have to order? How much, in, you know, fruits and vegetables, milk, are perishable, how much to order? What's going to come in? What's going to go? How much cash you have to have on hand to conduct these types of transactions? The way that the complex structure of the leases that, you know, you think the grocery store owns the building that they're in? All of these, you don't even have the, 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 capacity and the competence to run any of those things this is just a pipe dream for many people it's a joke that they play on themselves it's like a person who says i'm going to pray to hajjud tonight i'm going to pray to hajjud tonight and they you know they stay up until like one in the morning and then they go to sleep expecting that they're going to get up at three it doesn't work that way if you do it one night great it doesn't as a system it's not going to work for you it's an irresponsible way of thinking you have to build things up stepwise step by step and so the 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 point of the title of this talk is what? Is that the Muslim world suffered a, 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 a jolt, a loss, which is that because of certain political happenings, because of certain uh, 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 political happenings, both inside the Muslim world and inside of Europe, Europeans develop at some point a superior capacity to be able to kill people. It has nothing to do with even a, an advancement in science or mathematics or any of these things. They develop a what? A superior capacity to kill people. That they're able to go into these, these ancient and established world empires. China, the Indian subcontinent, Iran, the Ottoman Empire, North Africa. And they're able to unleash like a hailstorm of death and just kill a whole bunch of people. And so now the Muslims are standing there looking and seeing that their entire way of life that they've had for a thousand years, and more than a thousand years, it's being you know, it's being pulled apart because you have two options now. Either you stand in front of these people and get killed, and they're ruthless. Or on the flip side, uh, you just have to, you know, listen to what they say in order to spare your life and see where this goes. So those people who wanted to have their shahada in front of Allah Ta'ala, they already went where they went. We're the other part of the ummah that's left behind. Don't worry, Allah from His Fadl gives to everybody, right? Uh, but that's a fact, that's a reality. If you want to look at what history is, that's a reality, that's a fact. The Ummah hasn't, it's not that like the Ummah hasn't gone through this before. If you read the, the, the history of the Crusades, of the Mongol invasion, etc., etc., the Ummah has gone through the shock before where they have like an overwhelming enemy that's just able to decimate people militarily and they've regrouped and struck back. This is what happened with the Crusades. People know the history of Salahuddin Ayyubi, rahimahullah ta'ala. What they don't know is what happened before him and what happened after him. What happened before him to make people like him possible is what? The resurrection of essentially the, uh, the, the Sunni uh, Islam, which the state was built on before, under the reign of Imaduddin Zengi and Nuruddin Zengi, who essentially politically got their act together, militarily formed themselves into a, a cohesive and, 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 and solid group. And then afterward, what would they do? Every alim from any place in the world who was of any renown in any science, every preacher, every person who had any uh, connection with ilm, 
They said, you tell us how much you need and you come to Damascus, you come to Aleppo, you come to Halab, you come to these cities in Sham that they ruled and start teaching the people. The idea is what? When the people come onto the deen, it's good for their akhirah. But from a purely political point of view, it's good for something else as well. Why is it that America, you can get stuff done over here? Because there's peace in the streets. People are not fighting with each other. People are not killing each other. There's some sort of restraint that stops people from behaving in a way that is uh, going to cause the, the society to implode on itself. Here, what is it? The fact that the cops are going to get you if you try doing something stupid. And the reason that I say that is what? If you see like uh, when the hurricane uh, hit, Hurricane Katrina hit uh, Louisiana, uh, or different places where like at times and places where natural disasters happen or the basic order breaks down, you'll see from that very moment looting starts, riots start. Whereas in the Muslim world, there are entire countries that haven't had a government for like 10 years, a functional government. In those places, even though there are crazy people who loot and steal and rob and whatever, the majority of the people, because of the fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they, they, still, you know, they still refrain from this type of behavior and this type of activity. The thing is this, if everybody's on the same page, everybody has the same goal in life, everybody has the same understanding of what they want to do in life, you don't have like separate tribes, ethnic groups, linguistic groups, socioeconomic groups, fighting with each other constantly, what happens is it allows the state to marshal and sally its, uh, its resources in a particular direction with a great amount of strength. Whereas that's, that was gone. There was a lot of infighting. That's what allowed the crusaders to take over. There was a great amount of infighting. That's what allowed the Mongols to take over. These are things that happened in the past. And that's also what allowed the Europeans to take over. What people don't know is because they don't read the history uh, of the Muslims. The Indian subcontinent, for example. There was a sultan in southern India. He wasn't part of the Mughal Empire. His name was Haider Ali. He was a, a, a sultan in Mysore in the southern part of, in the southern tip of India. He took his army onto the battlefield and, and defeated the British in like actual, in actual battle. He defeated them once. His son, who was more well-known, who went by the, the, the nickname of Tipu Sultan, he also defeated the British on the open battlefield twice, which is not a small, it's not a small feat. You know, like in the Star-Spangled Banner, right? There's a line in the Star-Spangled Banner and the rockets, red glare, bombs bursting in air. How did the British, where did they learn how to use rockets in, uh, in battle? It was from Tipu Sultan's army. They end up, they end up defeating Tipu Sultan basically by bribing out his officers and uh, his courtiers. Otherwise, they were unable to beat him in, in the open battlefield ever. The problem is this is that when your society is so fractured that you can actually buy people out. If you go try bribing somebody in the O'Hare airport when you come in from an international flight, say, listen, man, just, you know, let this bag through, don't take a look at it. What's going to end up happening? What's going to end up happening? A, you're not going to, you're going to lose your money. B, you're not going to get your bag through. And uh, C, you're going to end up in jail for a long time. And you deserve it. And you deserve it. The issue is what? You need, you need to have a nation of people who are willing to go with the system and understand that going with the system is somehow in their benefit. I know this is a very political way of looking at it, but it's one of the benefits of the hikmah, of the wisdom of the sharia. Because the sharia is there for our benefit in this world and the hereafter. It's not just Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saying, you know, when I say jump, you say how high just because I'm Allah. He could do that. That's his right if he wanted to. However, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, out of His mercy to us, every hukam of the sharia is for our own benefit in a holistic way. 
in a holistic way, whether we understand it or we don't. But that's what the iman of proper people are. People need to know that. People need to understand that. Then they need to know what the hukum is. Then they need to see people who are an example for them, how to follow that hukum. So Nuruddin Zengi, Imaduddin Zengi, uh, and then his son after him, Nuruddin, they built this huge infrastructure for the revival of what? For who, how many people here were at the Jum'ah Khutbah today? Raise your hand. Whoever wasn't, inshallah, Darsam will send you the link to the talk. We talked about what does it mean when we say Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah or when we see the word Sunni. It's not a sectarian pronouncement. Rather, it refers to something very specific in the deen that Rasulullah talked about. That Sunni identity was revived with these people through the building of Madaris, through the building, of, through the sponsorship of the ulama, through bringing people all onto the same page. The benefit, the primary benefit of which the deen teaches us is what? That people will be saved on the day of judgment. Allah will forgive them their sins and enter them into Jannah forever and ever. One of the side benefits which Allah Ta'ala knew about and wished to confer on the Muslims is what? Is that it will make them cohesive, a cohesive group and successful in this world as well. That's what they did. That's what allowed Salahuddin Ayyubi to have an army that he can recruit from, of people that are not for sale, of people that are, are intelligent, that, of people that are hardworking, of people that won't fight with one another. This is the same thing that happens also then in repelling the Mongols from the Muslim lands under the reign of the, uh, of the Mamluk slave dynasty that ruled over. They were slaves, slave kings that ruled over uh, 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 Egypt and Syria. Uh, in uh, the, the era after the Ayyubid dynasty, the Zengid and Ayyubid dynasty that drove out the, the, um, drove out the crusaders. And in many ways, they were a, an extension of their state. Why? Because they are those slave soldiers, because they, Islam is a meritocracy. Even if a person is a slave, meaning their forefathers were people who fought against the Muslims, and they were captured, and they became prisoners of the Muslims, those same slaves, once they become Muslim and they make good on their Islam and they show that they're competent, intelligent people, they would move up the ranks until some of them would become generals in the army. And then at some point, the Ayyubid uh, uh, kings uh, and princes, they, they fractured with each other and fought with each other. And these slaves, uh, slave generals are thinking like, we're happy, to serve, we're happy to serve our masters. However, these people are going to destroy the, the Muslims. The Mongols are going to sweep over this entire land, burn every masjid to the ground, kill everybody uh, uh, mercilessly as they were known to do. As they were known to do. And humiliate the, the, the people of deen. And humiliate the ulama. And humiliate the masajid. Humiliate the women of the, of the Muslims, the elders. All of these things, they're going to absolutely wreak chaos and havoc on Islam. And so those slave generals, for the sake of the deen, to protect the deen, those slave generals whose like grandfathers were actually pagans, what did they do? They overthrew the, uh, the Ayyubid dynasty. They were recruited by those people for a reason, because they were good. They overthrew them, and then what did they do? They made that state even better. And they then repelled the Mongols from the Muslim lands. They repelled the remnants of the crusaders from the Muslim lands. This is something that we see this model that you have to keep the aqidah, you have to keep the ilm in place. Then you have a chance of doing something on the political front. If your aqidah is done, if your ilm is done, do you think that the Muslims are going to be victorious just because I'm Pakistani and you're Indian? Come on. Pakistan, mashallah, India, all of these countries, the north is fighting against the south, the rich are fighting against the poor, this tribe is fighting against the other tribe, every country in the Muslim world, they can't even fight wars with each other anymore because they're all busy fighting civil wars. Why? Nobody has any tarbiyah in the deen whatsoever. 
So what I wanted to share with you, there is a, a recording that I also have posted on the SoundCloud, inshallah, Brother Saadat or whoever else is, uh, um, whoever else is, uh, you know, has access to those who registered for the program. They can share it with you, and it's the recording with regard re- with regards to the Waliullah family and with regards to uh, Sayyid Ahmed Shaheed. Uh, these are the people who essentially are the ones who established the study of Hadith in the Indian subcontinent. Uh, and, and they're the ones through whom the sanad of hadith that we have proliferates. Um, if you haven't heard it before, it's online. Go ahead and listen to it. I assume most people here, at least the students, have listened to it before. Have you listened to it? Raise your hand. Right? Okay, very few people have. Then you can go listen to it online, inshallah. Why, why repeat it? Well, let's talk about something else, inshallah. And the something else is what? We'll go through a very quick summary, right? There was a, a scholar by the name of Ahmed bin Abdul Rahim. His laqab, his nickname was Waliullah. Uh, uh, and and, and uh, Shah Waliullah was a genius student. His father was a pious man. He ran a madrasa in Delhi. This is in the 1600s. Delhi is the capital of, uh, of, of, of the Mughal Empire. One of the capitals of the Mughal Empire, but the main capital of the Mughal Empire. Now they have a new Delhi that, that, that's the capital of India. But it's a very different city now than it was in those days. Uh, during the reign, of the, reign of, of the Mughals, during the heyday of their empire, mashallah, of which Hafiz Iqbal traces his lineage, mashallah, and other people maybe possibly in the crowd. Uh, during the heyday of their reign, Delhi was not, because we think about it now as the capital of India, Delhi was the city of the Muslims. It was a city that only Muslims were allowed to live in. Non-Muslims would come like as servants or as, as uh, uh, cleaners or as um, you know, uh, people who have like official business in the court or as people who have uh, you know, like, uh, traders that buy and sell things in the marketplaces. And they were expected, they came after the sunrises and they were expected to leave by Maghrib. The city had dozens of madars, had dozens of awqaf, free hospitals, it had dozens of inns for travelers to come stay at, it had uh, poets, it had artists, it had a very vibrant cultural life. Uh, it had a great uh, infrastructure for the students of knowledge and for the ulama. That Dili, Shah Abdul Rahim ran one of the madars of that Dili. Abdul Rahim, the father of this Ahmed Waliullah. So he sends his son to go and study deen where? In Makkah Mukarramah. People used to come and go between Hajj. No part of the Ummah was cut off from the other part. They all knew what was going on in different places. They would copy the books when they would go to, go to the Haram Sharif and they would bring the books of the other ulama back to the point where correspondence used to happen from various parts of the empire because people go every year on Hajj. People go for Umrah every year. They're coming and they're going. The Ummah was connected with each other like it's still uh, uh, connected or at least should be connected right now. So what ended up happening, he sends his son to go and study from the muhaddithin of, of, uh, of, of the Hijaz, of Makkah Mukarramah and Medina Munawwara. To this point, in the Indian subcontinent, the study of hadith was very weak. Why? Because if you're a muhaddith, you're not going to get a good job. It doesn't pay. What pays? Becoming the qadi, the judge. And so if you want to become the qadi, you have to, become, you have to study fiqh. And the study of fiqh is a very noble pursuit. But what happens is all the top minds are going into what? Into the study of fiqh. Nobody wants to study hadith. There was one genius scholar from the generation before. His name was Shah Abdul Haqq al-Muhaddith al-Dihlawi rahimahullah ta'ala. He actually opened a, a madrasa in the city of Delhi for the study of hadith. His son was a genius like the father. And then he got the job as the qadi. And he didn't, he didn't uh, uh, propagate the sanad, the, the chain of narration of his father. And so their, their uh, teaching hadith died out. 
Shawliullah went and he took the ahadith of the Siha Sitta as well as almost a, you know, like a mind-boggling number of other works. His uh, main sheikh was uh, a, a Kurd mutiny. Mutiny is what happens when you're rebelling against legitimate authority. They were doing what? They were just fighting for their, their land and for their dignity. Right? So this is, I fought in 1857 against the British and I was wounded. And he said that we were so completely, we were so completely like uh, 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 defeated in battle that it was just bodies strewn everywhere. It was bodies strewn everywhere. So he said that I was, I was unconscious amongst a heap of bodies. And so I saw that the Hurain came to all of the shuhada. And they had jugs of water and they were pouring the water into the mouths of, of, of all of the shuhada. And they came to me, right? Madrasa students, don't get too excited, right? That they came to me. I mean, on one side you laugh, but this is the promise of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as well. For whoever enters Jannah and whoever shaheed fi sabilillah and whoever is a person who achieves salvation. So it's not that much of a joke either. You know what I mean? So he said, they came to me and they held a pitcher to my lips and then one of them says to the other, it says, it's not his time yet. So he said that just a drop touched over there, I can still taste the sweetness in that place. So many years passed, decades passed, I can still taste the sweetness on that place on the bottom of my tongue. Meaning what? Next time one of these, you know, like uh, uh, big, you know, big huff and puff, uh, jahil, like caliphate type people are going to get up and say, oh, the ulama are sellouts. Look at you. Look at you. You live in like Bolingbroke. You live in Glendale Heights. You actually have a job as like an accountant. No one benefits from the quote-unquote kufr system more than you do. You never bothered to learn tajweed. You didn't even bother to learn to pray right and you still want to stand in the member of the Prophet ﷺ and give the khutbah. Even though Rasulullah ﷺ was the one who said, Al-ulama'u The ulama are the inheritors of the prophets. So if you don't like them, it's a complaint against who? Not against them. Against the one who, who said that these are the ones who represent me in my ummah. Alayhi salatu Right? What have you, what have you sacrificed? They ran the madrasa in Deoband, which was affiliated then with a number of other madaris and then seeded a number of other madaris in the Indian subcontinent with originally how long of a course? 12 years. They said that that, that, that knowledge that took people 30 years to amass in the past, in one day the British round up dozens of those people and kill them. So we need to crank out the machine faster. Otherwise, people one day will come and they won't find somebody to teach them how to say La ilaha illallah or to teach them how to read the 30th juz of Quran. It's going to become like that one day. That 12 years was then later on reduced to what? Eight. And then it comes to America and to England and it becomes what? South Africa becomes what? Six and four. And then it becomes four years like weekend course. And then it becomes two years weekend course and the joke never ends. There excuse was what? The British were going to kill them. What's our excuse? I don't know. I'm not making an objection against Dar es Salaam or whatever. Dar es Salaam is wonderful. Or any Madaris that are here right now. But you as students of knowledge, what's your excuse? That you're going to, after, after you get, you've done your four years, five years, six years, and they put a turban on your head, and you receive like a ijazah with your name on it, and then you get upset that, how come so-and-so didn't call me Mulana, and the people should respect, this, respect the ulama, and they mean what? They should respect me. This is kind of a joke, to be very frank with you. You know, the, for the people who are not in madrasa, you should respect such people anyway, but f- between us as the students of knowledge, it's kind of a joke. It's actually quite a joke. 
you should spend the rest of your life studying. Why? Because nobody's trying to kill you. And that's how you're a real student of knowledge. Is how? By dedicating your life to the, the pursuit of knowledge, right? The talib ilm. Talaba doesn't mean to, to study. What does it mean? It means to seek something, to desire something. It to seek something, to desire something. You have to build a desire inside of yourself for that knowledge. Even those people who took that 12-year course and that 8-year course. It's not like they graduated and they finished. What, the, the whole idea with it is what? To stack the, 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 the course of study in such a way that what? That the most difficult topics that require, uh, and the ones that most require having a teacher to teach them to you, you read them first. That way the rest of the things that may not require a teacher to kind of spoon feed those topics to you, you can read them on your own. But now, instead of reading those books, we spend time on Facebook and Twitter. We spend time on, on YouTube and liking and trolling one another and God knows, you know, all these silly and stupid things. Their excuse was what? British, we're going to kill them. What's our excuse? Nobody's trying to kill us. We're, the biggest enemy we have is ourselves. So that Qasim Nanotri Rashid Ahmed Gangohi Ta'ala Qasim Nanotri passed away very early in the, in the, the um, establishment of the madrasa. Mulana Rashid Ahmed Gangohi had a very long life. He passed away also before, before the, uh, the Indian subcontinent saw, uh, uh, decades before the Indian subcontinent saw the, the, the end of British rule. But the two of them, they prepared a very special student. They prepared a very special student. His name was Mahmoud al-Hassan, uh, who was actually from the village of Deoband and the first student of the madrasa. And his laqab will end up becoming later on what? Shaykh al-Hind. Now why is it that Darul Qasim names its like introductory Arabic program, the Shaykh al-Hind program? People are like, what is this? Don't say Shaykh al-Hind. The Arabs are not going to want to read here. What do you know about the Arabs? The Arabs aren't punks like us, mashallah. They have some honor, mashallah. If they knew who Shaykh al-Hind was, when they find out, they're the first ones to sign up. Do you want to know who Shaykh al-Hind was? Right? Some people say the ulama are sellouts. He was a master of the sciences inwardly and outwardly. I cannot convey what does that even mean to a person who's never studied deen. I can't convey what does that mean. It's like trying to describe like what an atom is or what an electron is to somebody who you know, lived a thousand years ago. It's just something that's beyond a person's ability to conceive what does it mean the mastery of knowledge. But mashallah, everybody likes to talk about politics when they're drinking cha, so let's talk about politics. One of his students was a Sayyid, someone from the Ahlul Bayt of Rasulullah His name was Hussein Ahmed from Faizabad. Right? Faid with a dad. Right? Because, mashallah, you don't, you don't say Faisal, Faisalabad. But we, if we say that, then people say, what are you talking about? Right? He's from a city called Faisalabad. Okay? And so what ends up happening is his father, his father, Sayyid Ahmed, his sheikh passes away. Mulana Fadl Rahman Ganj Murad Abadi. He's known to the ulama of Sham. I've heard them mention his name before. He was one of the great muhaddithin of the Indian subcontinent, also from the, the line of Shah Walilah in terms of the, the Sanad. So, there's what? Hussein Ahmed. His father's name is Sayyid Ahmed. And his father, Sheikh Fazlur Rahman Ganj Murad Abadi, passes away. In those days, people used to like love the ulama in a way like we can't really think about. So when Sayyid Ahmed Sheikh passes away, he is completely heartbroken. It's like more than nowadays if somebody like their wife that they were you know married to for fifty years or their parents. It was completely heartbroken, and he couldn't find the will to live. He became weaker and weaker as the days went on. And uh, uh, one of the ulama gave him advice. He says, "Look." It's haram in this sharia to kill yourself. The only, the only uh, cure for this uh, 
depression that you're in right now that I can see for you is that just get up and go to Medina Munawwara when you see the, the Rawda Mubarakah of Rasulullah you'll feel better it will allow you to you know the self-destruction that you have inside of you it will stop it and so he gathers his sons he says look I'm going to the balad of Rasulullah and I'm never going to come back. I have no more raghba in this dunya anymore. Just in order to save my life, I'm going to leave right now. Uh, and my, my advice to you is what? If you want, come with me. But don't make the intention of making hijrah. Why? Because whoever makes the intention of making hijrah, Allah Ta'ala will test them. Because it's a very noble intention. Is Allah Ta'ala will test them. If you fail that test... Then, then, then Allah Ta'ala will destroy all the reward that you got for the, for the, uh, for the hijrah. And then every time afterward that you regret moving to Medina Munawwara, that's going to be sin against you because this is a balad of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So his sons, they accepted this nasiha and they went with him to Medina Munawwara. And so Hussein Ahmed, the, the son that I was talking about, he went to Medina with his father and he was studying in Deoband from the Shaykh al-Hind, Mahmoud al-Hassan. He, in the middle of his studies, he went with his father, helped him get moved, and then his father said, now go back to India and finish your studies. So he went back to India. He went through the entire syllabus of Dar, the Darulum, uh, the 12-year syllabus, and then he receives the, 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 the Sanad and Ijazah from the ulama, and then he goes back to be with his father. With his father where? In Medina Munawwara. Now that Medina Munawwara, the Masjid of the Prophet ﷺ was very different than the, ones that you, the one that you see right now. It's still, it's always beautiful. Medina Munawwara is always beautiful. However, the, one of the main differences was what? Was in, in those days, every pillar, every corner, every place in the masjid, both Haramain, Makkah Mukarramah and Medina Munawwara, they were filled with the ulama teaching dars. So the masters of all of the uloom from in, the entire Muslim world, they would stand in a corner and they would teach some, some dars. Now they do it with the, the halaqat of hifs. That used to even not be there just a couple of years ago, right? Now they'll, they'll, they have the halaqat where people learn tajweed and they learn hifs of Quran or they'll have like a lesson once a week or something like that. In those days, it was open season. If you were, didn't know what you were talking about, the ulama of the entire ummah are going to make a fool of you. So you're, gonna, you're not going to, open mic night is not going to like do too well. Only the people who could like, you know, bring something uh, of quality, those were the people who would stand and teach. But it was still open for the entire ummah. So someone may be giving the most delicate and the most refined dars on the most complex of topics. And an old woman from somewhere or another who came on hajj would say, Sheikh, what is this? Like, are we supposed to say amin or loud or in the salat or not? And I said, no, you're not supposed to. But what about the hadith or whatever? So they'll say, like, you know, pause the dars deal with old lady and her fiqh issues or whatever and then with politeness and then move on to the dars it was open there's no madrasa no sign up nothing there are people who still remember that 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 tartib in the haramin sharifain and now they go uh, uh, to the uh, to to and Medina Munawwara and they see that nobody cares about deen anymore everybody's asking each other which hotel are you staying in and shopping in the malls and they cry some of them they say I can't go back anymore my heart is too broken for that you did your hajj that's up to you at any rate, Mawlana Hussein Ahmed Madani rahimullah ta'ala for the next 16 years, right? Mawlana Hussein Ahmed what? Fezabadi. For the next 16 years, he, he stood at a pillar of the masjid of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and he uh, taught the deen for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to the point where his halaqa became very well known. He became famous. Uh, and uh, people from everywhere it's not just like the, you know the Odysseys we're not going to study with them right people who love knowledge the person who has knowledge they'll go to them whoever they are whatever they are 
And so one of the very famous students of this Mawlana Hussein Ahmed from those days was an Algerian by the name of Abdul Hamid bin Badis. Have anyone heard this name before? Are there any Algerians here? Mashallah, you wish rock, man. What's up, man? Mashallah, married to Algerian. Alhamdulillah, mashallah. You know, other, other Desi kids, you know, don't try it at home. You might get hurt. So, in a good way, but still hurt. Uh, uh, the, what happens is Algerian student... He studied hadith from, from this uh, Hussein Ahmed Mulana, Hussein Ahmed Fezabadi. And he said what? He, he, he wrote a letter to his sheikh saying that the, the conditions in my country have become so bad. The French have killed all the ulama. They've jailed all of the good people. They've killed all of the good people. And they forced the women to be uh, 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 stripped of their hijab. And they've introduced drinking, and they've introduced zina, and they've introduced every vice into the country to the point where I don't, the way they describe how it is back home, I don't want to go back. I just want to stay in the balad of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam for the rest of my life. And so what did Shaykh say to him? He said, absolutely not. He has the letter. The letter is still there. He says, absolutely not. You will go back to Algeria. You will remind your people about the deen. You will remind your people about Allah and His Rasul sallallahu alayhi wasallam. You will remind your people about the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. You will remind them about all of these things. And you will stand against them and Allah ta'ala will be with you. And he went back and he's considered the spiritual father of the, 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 the Algerian resistance to the French. Algeria, Algeria will eventually get... Uh, uh, will eventually get uh, independence from France. And it's not because the French wanted to let it go. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, look what He did. The European powers went to every part of Africa, Asia, every part of North America, South America, enslaved the entire world in batil. Allah ta'ala visited two world wars on them. They had to let everything go. Because you can either spend your army fighting against like brown people or you can defend your, your own home against Hitler. That's the only choices they were left with. Allah Ta'ala helped the Muslims. The Muslims were unable to help themselves. So what ended up happening is that he's to this day a, a very renowned hero of the, uh, of the uh, Algerian resistance against the French. And he's a student of who? Of uh, Hussein Ahmed Faisalabadi who was what? Who's a student of? Mahmoud al-Hassan, Sheikh al-Hind. You know, we don't want to go study with the Indians. But it's Sheikh al-Hind, right? It's, well, if you don't want to, that's your problem. There was, mashallah, some people who were better than you that studied with Sheikh al-Hind, mashallah, and with his students. And Allah Ta'ala showed what their greatness is to the ummah of the Prophet sallallahu So what ends up happening is that this Hussein Ahmed Faisalabadi, he's teaching. He's teaching in, in Medina Munawwara, 16 years straight. His Sheikh... Mulana Mahmoud al-Hassan Gangohi do you think these people are just like oh khalas now I'm just a Nahu and Sarf teacher I don't care about the plight of the Ummah anymore or the Muslims anymore first of all the reason that they spent all of those years teaching the Nahu and Sarf and the Ulum of Deen Fiqh, Tafsir, Hadith all of these things is what? because they knew that if we don't preserve this knowledge we have no chance you know it's very strange if you go I traveled like I traveled in South America and things like that right people are very jahil they're very ignorant wherever you go so what happened was, I was in the streets of Bogota, the capital of Colombia, okay? And someone rolls down the, rolls down the window, he goes, Osama, woo! And he like puts up his thumbs like this, right? And so I, the brother, the sheikh I was with, I was like, yo, what's up with, uh, what's up with that, man? These people are, uh, are these people racist or what? He goes, didn't you see, did he show you a bad face to spit at you? He see, did you see how he was smiling and he put his thumbs up? I said, uh, yeah. He said, the reason they say that is because they know we were defeated by 
this like super capitalistic, materialistic blight that moved over all the lands of the world. We've given up. We have no means of resistance militarily or ideologically. But the entire world, they look at the Ummah of the Prophet ﷺ. The entire world, wallahi, they look at the Ummah of the Prophet ﷺ and they love and they respect us. You know, I go into the airport of Bogota with like my, my turban on and with my, you know, shalwar kameez and with my shawl and things like that. The other brothers who came on the different flights with uh, jeans and a t-shirt, all of them got stopped and taken into the corner. No beards, etc. Me, they smile and let you, let you, why? Because they respect, they respect this deen. Why? Because they know that that same farangi, that same materialistic colonizer that has no rahmah, has no mercy on anybody in this world, that we were unable to resist them, we had to join them. It's a, it's a, it's majburi. It's like you're, what can you do? It's a, it's a necessity in order to survive. But they know that the ummah of the Prophet ﷺ, that these people, they're still, they still can stand and hold their head up straight. They still have an alternative to this complete lifestyle of hedonism and of, uh, of cutting ties with your family and of destroying your own culture, destroying your own tradition, all of these things. So coming back to the, coming back to the, the story, they didn't, they didn't teach the deen because they're sellouts or they're weak people. They taught the deen because they were, Allah Ta'ala gave them an insight that without preserving this knowledge, you're never going to be able to survive the onslaught that all the other nations of the world completely have given up to. Do Chinese people wear Chinese clothes anymore? No. Do they have Chinese culture like their forefathers, Confucian values, etc.? No. Right? Do they have it in Thailand? No. Do they have it in, 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 in Africa? Are Africans wearing their traditional clothes except for those who live like with Muslims? Absolutely not. Right? Who are the people who preserve, these, preserve their culture and preserve their way of life that was from before the dog-eats-dog tartib of, 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 of Western market capitalism? It was who? It's the only the ummah of the Prophet ﷺ. The fact that you guys are, mashallah, eating halal gyro cheeseburgers, you know, while studying Dar Salaam with the, mashallah, with the, 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 the nice hat that has the sandal on top of it. I went to, I went to Malaysia, by the way. You know what they, I swear to God, the Na'al Sharif of the Prophet ﷺ, you know in Malay what they call it? They call it the chapal. The word chapal, literally in their language, that means that so-and-so is a chapali. If they see that, they'll say this is a chapali. Right? That, that's the Urdu word for Because many of the Indian subcontinent people brought the deen to there as well, as, as well as the Yemenis did. So Urdu became kind of like a semi-sacred language to them. And Allah knows how that happened, right? Uh, uh, yeah, Uthman, you came here, right? Hazm, you guys had to learn a little bit of Urdu, right? In order to like you know, study, study over here, right? Uh, it happens, you know, whoever serves the deen, Allah Ta'ala elevates their honor and whoever turns away from it, Allah Ta'ala humiliates and abases them, even if, uh, even if they happen to be uh, from Pakistan or India. So, what ends up happening, what happens, that's why they were doing it. But Sheikh Al-Hind wasn't one to take things sitting down. As, long, as soon as there's a little bit of breathing room, he starts his plan. The plan was so clandestine, almost nobody knew about it. Which was what? He wrote letters to all of the different leaders in India at that time. Muslim leaders, Hindu leaders, Sikh leaders, all the leaders of the different communities in India saying what? The, this, the, the, the British colonizer has no mercy on us. They think of us as slaves. They don't think of us as like human beings, right? Just like the original constitution, it wrote that black people are three-fifths of a person. Right? They think of us as animals. They have no mercy on us whatsoever. We're just a commodity to get maximum money out of and to live and die in toil so that they can materially benefit from us. They have no care for human life. They don't even care for one another. The only reason they're friends is that they'll get rich by working with one another. It said that 
India lived under Muslim rule for so many centuries. Even though the Muslims were on top, but they never treated the Hindus like that. This is something now they're trying to backwards erase that, that, that understanding that was there in the past and like write some sort of mythology about Muslims killing like 100 million people even though, or 90 million people, even though perhaps uh, 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 mathematically that would have been impossible. But if someone is a jahil, you can spoon feed them anything and fake news spreads faster than real news does. But at any rate, so they, he wrote letters, like secret letters that couldn't be known by, by anybody to these different community leaders and those people were people like they were people of salah and of dhikr they didn't care for the dunya they were respected for their purity for their spiritual purity when they spoke others listened even if they weren't Muslims others respected them even if they weren't Muslims and so what did they do? they secured, imagine this they, before email, before whatsapp was encrypted before any of this stuff, right? a document with the seals of all of these different leaders of different communities that document, if it was caught by the British, every one of them would have been hung from the gallows immediately. They got that, that letter, and they, they, once that document was complete and prepared, and the content of the document was what? It was a letter addressed to the Sultan in Istanbul of the Ottoman Empire. That if you come and attack the British in India, all of us promise two things. One is that we will assist you in fighting the British. They'll have to fight a battle on two fronts, one from the outside, one from the inside. And the second is that we will accept Ottoman rule over, the, uh, over, over our lands um, uh, instead of British rule, that we're not going to kick you out. That the reward for having dislodged this cruel and merciless enemy was what? Is that we will accept, we will accept Ottoman, Ottoman rule because the Turks, the same Turks that established the Ottoman Empire, their cousins are the same people who established the Mughal Empire. They were Turkic speaking people as well. Babur, who was the first uh, Mughal emperor, he spoke Chagatai, which is essentially like an archaic dialect of the modern Uzbek language. Um, and so, so that we're, we're fine. We know we've experienced this before. We're fine living under that system. People don't know this. The, uh, what they call the Indian Mutiny in 1857, the, the greatest number of soldiers that defended the, the, the Mughal throne, they weren't Muslims. They were what? Hindu Rajput warriors. There were people, the entire like kingdoms that were intact from before Mughal rule that swore loyalty to the Mughal throne. And they're the ones who, uh, who were like the strongest, uh, most battle-ready, uh, battle-hardened soldiers that participated in the, the, the mutiny of 1857. In fact, that's the reason why the Muslims lost is because Hindus to this day are very superstitious people. Things that happen, bad omens and things like that, they're very sensitive to these things. And so what happened was, one day when the British were sieging Delhi, there was an eclipse, which was a really bad omen in their, in their culture, because of which they fled the battlefield because they thought we were going to die and we were going to lose on this day. And that's what allowed the British to come in. But khair, the fact that they were still allied with the throne meant that the Mughal throne was something that the Hindus acknowledged was beneficial for them and was at any rate better than... Better than what? Better than the rule of the, the British. This document is prepared. While Shaykh al-Hind is teaching Sahih Bukhari and Sahih Muslim and all of these other books, mashallah, and it was smuggled out of India. It was smuggled out of India uh, uh, in a silk hijab of a woman. So they call it the silk, the, the Reshmi Rumal Tahrik, the, 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 the silk handkerchief uh, movement. Uh, and it gets caught. And someone tips off Shaykh al-Hind that we got caught. And so he, he leaves the, he leaves the, he makes for what? He makes for the port and makes for Hijaz because they're going to send him to the gallows. 
And so what ends up happening is that he's almost intercepted in Aden. Aden is like one of the last ports that ships sail past its southern Yemen. And the British actually occupied Aden as well. He, he misses getting caught. The message that to intercept him and take him from the ship, he misses getting caught at Aden by a very, uh, a, a very like uh, a slim margin. And he somehow gets away. Uh, he was supposed to be arrested, but like a minor oversight lets him escape from, from Aden. And he makes it where to the port, the port city of Hijaz is what? Jeddah, right? So he gets off in Jeddah, and what does he do? He, knocks on the, he goes and visits his student, knocks on the door of Mulana Hussein Ahmed Faizabadi. And he says to him, he says, look, you know, um, the document, we have, we, have, we, have the, we have a copy of it. And uh, um, this thing, you know, we need to talk to the Ottoman governor and get audience with the sultan in Istanbul. Right? Because this thing, this thing can go down. We could do this. And so, Mu'an Hussein Ahmed Faizabadi, what did he do? He used his connections from the people he knew, from the notable people of Medina Munawwara, to get an audience with the Ottoman governor of, of, of Medina. The Ottoman governor meets Mu'an uh, Mahmoud al-Hassan Sheikh al-Hind, and he sees the document, and he's like, this is really important. So he says that the, the, the commander of the garrison in, in, in Makkah Mukarramah, uh, he's the governor of this province Like over me So he says here's a recommendation Go meet with him and, and, and show this to him So they go to Makkah Mukarramah Makkah Mukarramah is very close to Ta'if right? And Ta'if has a, quite a high elevation So even in, even in the Saudi state uh, During the summers The summer capital was in Ta'if Because the weather is much more uh, It's much more friendly in the summer than, than the rest of the Arabian Peninsula is So they go and they, they, they meet with The Ottoman governor of Makkah Mukarramah And Ta'if and he said, this is, you know, he, they show what they have. He says, this is really important. So he, he puts a seal on a letter and says, the next imperial caravan that leaves from here uh, to go to Istanbul, uh, here's the, the, the seal, and it will grant you audience with the sultan. Like if just some riffraff shows up in Istanbul, they're not going to, they're going to get lost, right? But once you show this, this sealed document, you can have audience with the, with the sultan in, in Istanbul. They'll listen to your, your request and your petition, and they'll consider it, Right? So what happened? They weren't sellouts. They actually had a really good plan. I mean, they had a really good plan. It was a very viable plan. It could have worked. This is the qadr of Allah Ta'ala. And this is the thing, right? This is when we read aqidah and things like that. We should understand this. That the choice that Allah makes for us is better than the choices we make for ourselves. And Allah knows why. And the choices that Allah Ta'ala makes for us, if we have the highest level of iman, they make us happier than the choices that we made for ourselves Why? Because it comes from Allah Ta'ala There's khair in it This dunya is never meant to be perfect And it's not going to last forever So what ended up happening Is that the uh, forefather of the king the, the, the current royal family that rules in Jordan His name is uh, 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 Sharif Hussain uh, uh, He gathers a Bedouin army And they, uh, they basically will revol- revol- revolt against the against the Ottoman garrison in Hijaz. So Hussein Ahmed Faizabadi Rahimullah Ta'ala Qaddasallahu Sirrahu and his Shaykh Allah Ta'ala have mercy on, on both of them. They're where? They're in they're in Ta'if. They're surrounded by the the Bedouin army of, of the Sharif uh, uh, Hussein, who is essentially a partisan and ally of the British. And uh, before the Imperial caravan, next Imperial Imperial caravan can leave, they take over Makamukarama. And they jail both of the, the sheikh and student. By the way, meanwhile in Medina Munawwara, Allah Ta'ala, the, 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 the preservation and the protection of Medina Munawwara is something, it's unbelievable, it's incredible. 
Medina Munawwara, the south of it is mountains. And the east and west roughly are uh, the Labatain, right? The, har- the Harratain, the two, uh, they're like, it's basically lava rock. So horses cannot, cannot easily uh, cross over that land and that terrain. It's only open from the, the, the north, which is where the Khandaq was d- dug, right? So the Ottomans had built a, a railway uh, from Medina, that connected Istanbul to Medina Munawwara. And they would, when the, the army of the Sharif was sieging uh, uh, Medina Munawwara, imagine that. It's a blasphemy too. And Rasulullah made dua against anybody who will cause even the slightest disturbance to the people of his city. So imagine someone who's going to siege it and do battle in, 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 in Medina Munawwara. Hitherto, this was only the job of like the most freakishly horrible people from this ummah and the job of the kuffar. So they sieged the Medina Munawwara. The Ottoman train system that they had, it was, the trains were so well armored that they would come in at such a high speed the Bedouin army couldn't stop it. So every now and then it would bring a little bit of, 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 of something in, but not enough to feed the, the, all the inhabitants of Medina Munawwara, not frequently enough. And eventually what happens, the army of the Sharif will destroy the, the, the railway line and even that line breaks down. Four years, four years at the behest of the British, they sieged Medina Munawwara. The entire ummah was outraged. People were dying of starvation to the point where people had to eat corpses in order to survive. Imagine what the punishment of Allah Ta'ala is for somebody who would do that to the people of his city, of his jiwar sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. But that's what happened. One of the first trains, one of the first trains that left Medina Munawwara when the army of the Sharif sieged it. It carried the sacred relics of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and of the Sahaba. Out of fear that these people are the partisans of the British and these things are going to end up in the British Museum. That's why you see them in the Topkapi Palace in Istanbul, is that they escaped at that time. In fact, there's a place in the Topkapi Museum in Istanbul. They call it the, the Sanjak Sharif. Sanjak in the Turkish language means like a, uh, like a flag or a battle standard. The flagpole that the Rasul sallallahu alaihi wasallam used to have the flag of the the, the Sahaba, uh, the black flag of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum uh, 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 tied to. The 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 Turks when the the, the Ottoman Sultanate is deposed. And the nationalists are taking over, and they're known to be irreligious people. They were afraid that they're going to do something to deface or break or do something to the, the standard of the, the, the flag of the Prophet on that flagpole. So what they did was they bored a hole into the, into the marble floor, and they stuck it in there, and they put a marble tile over it that was slightly different color than the other tiles. So that what? So that nobody would know, only the people who kept that secret would know that it's there. And so to this day, they didn't remove it. They left it there. So there's like, you know, that, 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 what do they call it? You know, those ropes that they have like to have lines at the airport and things like that or movie theater stuff or that, right? So they have that four of them like around it so that nobody, nobody step on the, the, the sanjak of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. At any rate, that's what's happening in Medina, Medina Munawwara, right? So uh, Hussein Ahmed Faizabadi, his entire family was there. During that siege, his siblings, all, almost all of them die. Uh, sorry, all of his sisters die. Uh, many of his relatives, uh, they die uh, in patience, uh, uh, in staying in the, the city of the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Remember, what did, what did his father tell him? He said, don't make the knee of hijrah because you're going to have to go through great difficulty. Great difficulty because Allah Ta'ala will test to see how much you love Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and you love the balad of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And so uh, uh, the, the, the commander of the Ottoman garrison in Medina Munawwara, Fakhruddin Pasha, Umar Fakhruddin Pasha, he held 
Medina Munawwara out from the, uh, from the army of the Sharif for four years. He held it out so long that the Sultanate, the, the Sultan, the Khalifa even gets deposed by the, by the nationalist government. He still won't give up. He says, I, I'll never give up the messenger of Allah city to the partisans of the Kuffar. At some point, his own officers will arrest him uh, for, 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 for having lost his mind. <coughs> and they're the ones who will give up the, the city of the Prophet ﷺ to the army of the Sharif. And those people, what happened? The British, how did they repay them? They repaid them by giving Hijaz to the Saudis, which is what traders deserve. Right? Uh, and then they will get a, 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 a country somewhere else. There's a country called Transjordan. Transjordan means on both sides of the Jordan River. And then they'll get beat very decisively by the Israelis in a, in, a, in a war. And so then they'll only be on one side of the river. So then the trans kind of goes away and it's, it's just Jordan now, right? And obviously that was a long time ago. The people that are there right now, we don't hold it against them. But the history is history. People should know what it is, right? So what ends up happening is that instead of having to go through this four-year siege, the, the teacher and the student, both of them get caught and uh, people rat them out and say these guys are trying to have a, a, a conspiracy against the, 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 the British. So the army of the Sharif is like, that's it. You know, we're going to give these people up to, uh, uh, to the British. British are going to be happy with us. So what do they do? They'll take them to Jeddah and they'll give them to the agents of the British Empire who will subsequently put them under arrest and take them to a very strange place. There's an island in the middle of the Mediterranean. It's called Malta. Okay, Malta is one of three countries in the European Union that doesn't have a, 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 an Indo-European language that they speak. One is Finland, and the second is Hungary. They speak an agglutinative, agglutinative language that's somehow like distantly related to like Turkish. Okay, Hungary and Finland, and the third is Malta. Anyone here heard Maltese before? Have you ever heard Maltese before? Maltese is a Semitic language. Maltese is actually just Arabic. Right? The Muslims used to live there and rule there. And what ends up happening is the crusaders will take it from the Muslims. And at the, you know, at the threat of death, they will essentially force everybody to convert to Christianity. To this day, they speak Arabic with like two notable exceptions. One is that instead of saying shukran, they say grazie, like Italian, right? So it's like, it's really weird. Okay, it's really weird. Okay. And the second, the second thing is what? They don't count, you know, they use the, the, the Italian numbers. Otherwise, their language is essentially Arabic. It's almost intelligible. It's actually more intelligible than Hebrew or another Semitic language. It's essentially just Arabic. Uh, so what ends up happening is that this, uh, the Crusaders, since the time they took it over, it was like a, a, a naval base and a fortification up in the face of the Muslims in order to attack them. And it was at some point run by the Knights Templar. The Siege of Malta, if you read in the history of the Ottoman Empire, it's one of the most epic naval battles that, uh, that, that happens in the, the history of the, the Ottoman Empire against the Venetians. It's too epic, don't have time because we've already gone over. But the I idea is like, this is not a place that like you take Muslims you like, right? So what ends up happening is that Sheikh Al-Hind and his student, Hussein Ahmed Faiz Abadi, they're in solitary in Malta for four years as the elite prisoners of the empire. Anyone from Africa, from Southeast Asia, any place, Malay the, uh, Malaysia, any of these places that the British uh, can't kill, 
but need to keep like away from their people, they send them all to Malta. So all these people, they like, actually get to know each other and they get to learn what's like going on in the rest of the world, etc., etc. Uh, 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 these ulama actually like teach the other Muslims there about deen and like they pray and all of these other things. And what happens is said that, that imagine, right? We talk about having love for your mashayikh uh, that, that you cannot understand. The water was so cold because it's, 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 it's further north. In the winter, the water was so cold that uh, uh, Hussein Ahmed, he was afraid that my sheikh is an old man. He'll wake up for tahajjud and the water is going to be cold. He may become sick. He may, be, he may become ill. It may cause him discomfort. He may die from it. So he used to take the, 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 the pot of water with wudu and he would literally like embrace it like this when sleeping so that his body heat will at least keep it warm so that when Shaykh wakes up, it will, be, uh, it will be warm for him. At some point or another, when things become tenuous for the British in the Indian subcontinent, they will release both of these prisoners and let them come back to India. At that point, the days of, the days of, uh, of British rule are numbered. Uh, uh, Mahmoud al-Hassan Sheikh al-Hind will die very soon thereafter but he will tell his student who is Hussein Ahmed Faisal Badi that you, you, you have to now take over this, this work of teaching so first he sends him to Silat which is a, a place in the north of, uh, of, of what's the modern day Bangladesh uh, and his effect over there uh, in building a madrasa has given Silat a reputation even amongst Bangla speaking people to this day to be a, more, a, a very religious area a, a place that's a center of knowledge and learning and spiritual things and the people of Silat are known to be uh, very observant of, of, of Deen when compared to other people in, in, uh, in, in what's now Bangladesh uh, in the Bangla speaking part of the, uh, the, the Indian subcontinent after that what will happen is you know after certain things happen he will actually be called back to the Darulum and Deoband when his sheikh passes away so that he can become the sheikh al-hadith of the madrasa after his sheikh by the bequest of his sheikh ta'ala. And, and when he comes back to the Indian subcontinent then Faisabadi turns into what? Madani because people knew he used to teach the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ for so many years at home. He was not one to take things uh, sitting down. In fact, he participated in politics. He was a sitting member of parliament. He's one of the few mashayikh, we actually have pictures of him. Right? The ulama didn't like having pictures taken. You remember Moana Sayyid Ahmed Palanpuri came to this uh, madrasa a number of years ago and he was livid when he saw the security cameras. Right? The Mufti Sahiban tried to explain to him this just for security. It's not like we're taking pictures and publishing them. And he said, no, no, this, that, and the other thing. Why? Mawlana Hussein Ahmad Madani Ta'ala is reported to have said, I heard this from one of his direct students. He said that the kuffar take my pictures because I have to sit in the parliament and things like that. Or I have to appear uh, in, in munasabat with regards to government. He said, I cannot stop them. He says, but if anyone Muslim takes my picture, uh, I'm, going to, I'm the disputant against you on the day of judgment. So guess, guess who uh, 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 Mufti Palanpuri read hadith from? So he's not going to, you know, he's not, this is not something that he, you have to understand where they're coming from in order to understand why. It's not like they're stuck in the Stone Age or whatever. There's like real, uh, real human uh, reason on top of the ilmi reason, which is itself sufficient. That they react the way that they do to these things. So, Mawlana Hussein Ahmed Madani, right? I read in, in, in Jamia Madaniya in, 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 in Lahore. Okay, Jamia Madaniya was named Jamia Madaniya. Why? Because the Bani, the, the, uh, the one who established the, the Jamia, was Moana Sayyid Hamid Mia, who was uh, the, one of the students of Moana Hussein Ahmed Madani as well. 
And so he, he was told by his sheikh, go to Lahore, there's not, there, there, there needs to be another madrasa, there's not enough capacity to teach the students of knowledge over there. So he went to Lahore and opened a madrasa according to the hukum of his sheikh, and he named it after his sheikh. So Hussein Ahmed Madani, Faizabadi becomes Hussein Ahmed Madani, and that's the one that Jamia Madani is named after. Right? So the bani of the, of the madrasa is who? He is the student of Mulana Hussein Ahmed Madani. Uh, and in that sense, just like Mufti Palanpur, even though he's older than him, they're the students of what? Of the same sheikh. My sheikh that I read Bukhari from was the son of that Sayyid Hamid Mia who established the Jamia Madaniya. He said, my father told me, my father told me that my grandfather was, was one of the closest associates of Mulana Hussein Ahmed Madani. He said, once India got its independence, meaning the British left and let, uh, quit India and let it have local rule. He said that there was a, an award ceremony that was, was held for those people who gave great sacrifices in resisting the British and in, in helping, uh, helping us to gain independence f- from them. And she said that Mulan Hussein Ahmed Madani and a number of his close associates, including my father, were called to receive a reward, an award at that, at that ceremony. So they gave him a, like a, like an award, like a plaque or a medal. And then they, they gave him a house. They gave a deed, like an allotment to a, a public, a government house. And they gave him a rail pass that you can travel first class on the railway for free for the rest of your life. And they gave him a cash prize. He said the, the one who spoke on, on their behalf, on behalf of this contingent of ulama who uh, spent their life in, in, in trying to free their homeland. Not just for the Muslims, but for everybody who was oppressed. They stood up at the podium, right? And they sent Mulana Hussein Ahmed Madani to receive the, the reward for them on their behalf. And so he said that this rail pass, this house, this, all of these things, you take them back. We're not going to accept them because we didn't fight the British for the sake of our, for the sake of homeland or any of these things. We fought them for the sake of Allah Taala, and we're going to ask for a reward from Him, Jalla Ab, tell me, which one of these maniac nutcase caliphate yahoos from the backwoods of Syria and? And, and from the backwoods of Iraq and all of these different places in the Muslim world where they're causing fasad and bombing masajid and opening fire on, on Muslims and coming over here and telling our own youth, go join them in these places because your ulama are sellouts. Tell me which one of those people ever gave up anything for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala like that. Rather, even this Dar Salaam, you know what Jami Madani is named after Mulana Hussein Ahmed Madani? Do you know what Dar Salaam is named after? Dar Salaam is named after Medina. It's one of the names of Medina Munawwara. But you know what that's named after? It's named after Jannah. Because that's how Allah Ta'ala called Jannah in his book. The Mashaykh of Mufti Azimuddin, they're not from South Africa that they speak Zulu or whatever. Those people are the students of who? They're the students of a madrasa in Karachi that was started by uh, 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 Mulana. Uh, a Sayyid from the Ahlul Bayt of the Prophet Sallallahu his, his name was Sayyid Yusuf Banuri Rahimullah Ta'ala who was the student of Mulana uh, 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 Anwar Shah Kashmiri Rahimullah Ta'ala. Um, the Khatimatul Hufaz. He was the, the, one of the last people in this ummah that had photographic memory. That he could look at a book one time and memorize what was on every page of the book 40 years. He said, I read the entire the library of the Darulum and Dilban memorized every single book of it. And people would test him and he would read the ibarat of the books word for word, letter for letter. It was his student, right? And th- those students from South Africa, Gujarati, the sons of Gujarati traders, under apartheid. 
Not like in Lombard, like, you know, eating whatever, gyro cheeseburgers and, and whatever on the weekends. Under apartheid. You're a dog. You're an animal. You cannot eat at the same restaurant. You cannot, you cannot sit at the same bench. You have no right to vote. You have to stand in a separate line. <coughs> the line you stand at is not like the same line that the white people stand at. Despite all of that, what did they do? They still established all of these madars. So that what? So that some students will come in that same madrasa that they opened under such difficulty. People don't know this, right? One of the, one of the closest friends of Nelson Mandela, when he was in jail from the apartheid government, is a Muslim. Muslims partook in that struggle. Those madars were opened up under very, very difficult, constrained circumstances that your asatiza that studied in those places, that they can come over here and you have, mashallah, Dar Salaam, that has the fanciest chandelier in the whole Chicago, mashallah. Most people, all they see is that. They don't know about all of this other stuff. Wallahi al-Azim, the nisbah to these ulama, yawm al-Qiyamah, will be worth more than a chandelier and a Tesla car and being a doctor and having money and all of these different things that people salivate over and uh, having a 10,000 or 100,000 followers or a million followers on, on, on uh, Facebook and Twitter and all of this other nonsense. We should know. Those are the people, this was their, their, their mission in life. That's why their madaris made it to all of these weird places. Right? You know South Africa, Cape Town was also a a prison colony for the Dutch, Dutch colonial trading empire. Much like Malta was a prison colony for the British. One of the, one of the, one of the princes, he was a prince of a, a, a sultanate in Malaysia. They call him Tuan Guru. He, he, was, he went to go study deen and make hajj. He was so learned that the Shafi'is made him the mufti, the Shafi'i mufti of Makkah Mukarrama for several years. He went back home when he heard that the Dutch attacked his father's kingdom and disposed them, that he should take a group of his students with him, Fisa Bilillah, in order to, 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 to throw out the, the usurpers of his father's throne. They caught him. The Mughal emperor Aurangzeb, he told the British, he said, if you lay a finger on this, this, this prisoner, this is in the 1600s, before the, the, the Mughal Empire is deposed, while it's still powerful. He said, if you lay a finger on him, much less execute him, we will gather up every British person in the entire Mughal Empire and we'll kill them in retribution. Because he was an alim of deen, they didn't mess around with that. And it was probably an empty threat. He was a just man, he wouldn't have done it. But you know, he, he, he said, this is not possible. So what did they do? Instead, they took him to Cape Town in South Africa, and they put him in the hole, in unlit, like, solitary confinement. And he was there for decades. They barely kept him alive, just food or whatever, bare necessities, that's it. When he became an old man, they said, let's take him out. He's not going to start a rebellion or a revolution anymore now, is he? Right? So what did they do when they went back and went down into the hole that he was in? They, they, they opened a lamp and they saw that he had written from memory the, the, the Mus'haf again and again and again on the walls. Any one of us, if we were in solitary like that for three days, we would lose our mind. Khalil Center wouldn't have been able to help us. Do you know what I mean? The mind once broken, not easily put together again. Allah Ta'ala protect us from any calamity like that. Allah Ta'ala, we have hope in Allah Ta'ala, He protects us from those types of calamities because we're weak, we cannot survive that. Imagine the spiritual power inside of a, of a person that he's a prince used to the, 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 the most respect and luxury. And he's a alim, he's used to respect and going into that, that pit and not only coming out with, you know, with all of his marbles, with the full deck of cards, but coming out in such a way that what? That you still, you still, uh, uh, you know, you still have your knowledge with you, your wits about you. 
He actually composed poems in the Malay language that taught the basic masail uh, of aqidah, tahara, fiqh, you know, the basic things that people need to know so that the workers on the field, while they're working, they could sing them like songs and then uh, 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 preserve, that, preserve that knowledge. That's why we have this deen to this day. Otherwise, everybody's a Muslim, mashallah, when it's Eid, everybody puts on their nice fancy turban and jubbah, and everybody want, you know, puts the, reshares the Facebook post with the nice, you know, like, scenery, and like, Everybody can do that when it's easy, right? When the going gets tough, you'll see then who cares for this deen, who doesn't care for this deen. This is something, look, I'm not even telling anyone that, 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 that uh, you know, go do that and be that way. Why? Because I myself was unable to be that way. How can I judge anybody else for not being like that? I myself was unable to f- forget about preserving the knowledge, even holding on to the hukum of Allah Ta'ala and prevent myself from his disobedience. How am I going to yell at anybody else from doing that, for not being able to do that? But the idea is this, is look, Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said something, and with this, inshallah, we'll, we'll, we'll end. Which is, mashallah, I see some smiles in the crowd. The, the, he said a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ that's actually narrated in a number of different occasions that he said this. He said what? Al-mar'u ma'aman ahabba. A man will be with the one that he loves. We have an excuse for not being like that. It's, it's hard. It's difficult. It's not easy. Some of the mashayikh, some of the awliya of Allah Ta'ala, the difficulty that they went through for us even to, uh, even to uh, 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 take that difficulty for like five minutes, I, I have no doubt it would kill us. Some of that difficulty and pain and suffering that people went through, a human being is a human being. To see yourself in, so completely uh, in control of your enemies, knowing that you're right and they're wrong, and that you sacrificed and all they did was feed their nafs, and still being put underneath that person's control, many people would leave the deen, many people would die from the amount of grief that, that comes with that. If you cannot do that, then what? Rasulullah said, a man will be with the one that he loves. You have a choice. The real state inside of your heart, right? Uh, uh, I quoted every now and then in Bayan, maybe you heard me quote it before. What the hell? Why not quote it again, right? Allah Akbar, man ki dunya, man ki dunya. Man ki dunya mena dekha, mene afrangi karaj. Man ki dunya mena dekha, mene afrangi karaj. Man ki dunya, man ki dolat aati hai, haat aati hai, jati nahi. Tan ki dolat chhao hai, aata hai dhan, jata hai dhan. Man ki dunya mena dekha, mene afrangi karaj. Man ki dunya mena dekha, mene sudo makro fun. The life of the heart, or the world of the heart. I didn't see that the afrangi was able to rule, the, the farangi was able to rule there. Inside the heart, the, 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 the British and the French, <coughs> the Dutch, they have no, they have no stake to that claim, and they have no uh, claim to stake inside of the heart. They know nothing about it. They themselves are killing themselves. Why? Because in that place, they're the slaves, they're the animals, they're the ones who have no maqam to stand in. The person who spent their entire life chasing their, their, their desires, chasing the material world, that person spiritually is the weakest of people. Inside of the, that, that, that world, inside of the heart, they have no empire. They, have, they were unable to conquer that, that, that place. The rest of it we can, we can leave alone because of time. But you see that. There's no Republican Party inside there. There's no Democratic Party inside of there. There is no uh, tariffs on steel and aluminum imports inside of there. There is no sales tax or income tax inside of there. None of these things. There's no global warming inside of your heart. 
the only person who has any choice what's inside of there and the only person who has the like a king like a sultan has the ability to allot who gets what real estate in the inside of there and who doesn't is you that's it and so you may not be asked why didn't you have the you know revive the whatever neo ottoman empire or whatever well, how come you couldn't put aurangzeb alamgir back under the throne ushering a new era of justice and whatever you, you allah ta'ala won't even ask you you weren't able to do that right what were you able to do inside of there choose who you love and allah ta'ala says, what's the reward for loving those people allah ta'ala will make you be with the one that you love in the akhirah forever if you look if you look at the people of materialism, if you look at the people who don't care about Allah and His Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, if you look at the people who don't care for the weak, if you look at the people who don't care for the book of Allah Ta'ala and the sacred shara of the Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, the Sahaba Radiallahu Ta'ala Anhum, these masahif, these books that are taught in these places, if you, if you would rather be like the ones who don't care for them, that's your choice. Allah Ta'ala will what? Al-mar'u ma'aman ahabba One should fear that Allah Ta'ala Make you end up with those people And the one who is proud that what? These are, these are the best human beings that Allah Ta'ala created After the Anbiya alayhimu salatu wasalam And they're the ones who did what's right No matter what happens These are the ones that I love These are the ones I cast my lot in These are the ones I want to name my children after These are the ones that I want to be like Even if I'm never able to be like them These are the ones that, that, that I, want my, uh, I want my lot to be cast in with It's a choice you make And Allah Ta'ala accepts And what's inside of the heart is more important than what's on the limbs this is the belief of the Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah. What's inside the heart is more important than what's on the limbs. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give all of us so much tawfiq. Wa sallallahu ta'ala ala rasulihi Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam ajma'een. So there are a couple of questions on the, this fancy tablet, mashallah. In the old days we used to just raise our hands. It also says in the hadith that if you hide and don't talk about someone's wrongdoings on the day of judgment, Allah will hide tens of your sins. Okay. Let's see. What books do you recommend reading about the ulama of the Indian subcontinent? <coughs> um, there is the most accessible of, of books. Whoever needs to leave can leave. It's, I know it's been a long time. The most accessible of books is the uh, Saviors of the Islamic Spirit, Mawana Abul Hassan Ali Nadwi. And they, the, the first chapters are above, about the old mashayikh, right? But the, 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 the second book um, in the series, the first book has to do with the old mashayikh. The second book, it talks about uh, Ibn Taymiyyah, who's obviously not from the Indian subcontinent, and about Khaja Nizamuddin Awliya, we're talking about the Qadi. It said that when he was a young man, he asked one of the ulama, make dua that I become Qadi. And so uh, one of the ulama, the ulama cha- alim chastised him. He says that, why do you want the dunya for? He said, ask Allah Ta'ala that he love you. And he was known then later on to, uh, despite his ilm, be a person of zuhud that did without, the, the, without this world. We don't have time to talk about it. He's a very amazing person. And so the, the second one was Khaja Sharafuddin Yahya Al-Manyari, who was also from the Indian subcontinent. The third book of the, of the, the, the saviors of the Islamic spirit is about the Mujaddad Al-Thani. Mujaddid al-Thani uh, the, uh, who's known in Turkey and in Sham as the Imam al-Rabbani uh, Ahmed Sarhindi rahimullah tabaraka wa ta'ala um, and he's a very important person in the intellectual history of the Indian subcontinent the fourth book is about Shah Waliullah these books up until these four they're all translated into English may not be a great English but you know if you struggle with it you'll understand they're also in 
Mulana Abdul Hasan Ali Nadwi wrote them in Arabic and he wrote them in, in, in Urdu as well. So you can read them, if you can read them in Arabic or you can read them in Urdu. In Urdu they're published under the name Tariqa Dawatu Azimat. Uh, and in Arabic, they're they're trans they're 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 published under the name Rijal uh, Rijal Dawah al Fikr, and so read those books. The fifth book, which is not translated out of Urdu, is about Sayyid Ahmed Shahid, who is a very important person, who is also uh, uh, one of the contemporaries of the grandsons of Shah Waliullah. He was a student of Shah Abdul Aziz. Um, he's talked about in that other recording which Saadat Bhai can send to the people who registered for this course inshallah um, and that's a, that's a very important book as well so these are some books you can read there are also then uh, histories of the Darulun Deoband that, that, are, that are published um, in Arabic I don't know of any good one in English uh, what I can recommend is that Mulana Zakaria rahimahullah ta'ala Shaykh al-Hadith who was a student of Khalil Ahmed Saharanpuri People don't know this, but that's what Khalil Center is named after. And then it's his, Khalil Ahmed Saharanpuri is the, 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 the student of who? Mulana Rashid Ahmed Gangohi, who we mentioned in tonight's talk. Uh, he wrote, Sheikh Zakaria wrote his own autobiography, and many of the anecdotes and stories of the Akabir Mashaykh are mentioned there as well. Um, more than looking for books, go find the elders while they're still alive and ask them because there are some people who saw those people still alive Rashid Ahmad Gangohi nobody is alive that saw him but there's still people the students of Mulan Hussein Ahmad Madani are still alive uh, very few of them they're passing day by day go find them and ask them about their mashaykh uh, usually my experience is if you ask they just start to cry what stopped the British from killing Sheikh Hind and his student? The, there's an inward answer and the outward answer. The outward answer is that if they did, it would have caused riots in India. The inward answer is only Allah Ta'ala. Uh, <clears throat> during the siege, uh, uh, the three parties were the army of the Ottomans, the Sharif Hussein, uh, uh, and the, the, uh, the British. Where were the Saudis? They were on the eastern part of the Arabian Peninsula. Um, and they also rebelled against the, their forefathers rebelled against the, against the Ottoman state. Again, that was a long time ago. Don't just walk up to some Saudis and say, oh, why'd you guys rebel against Why are you eating gear cheeseburger in Lombard? It has nothing to do with what happened back then, okay? So I'm just mentioning these things as a matter of history, uh, not to divide people in the, in the ummah. We already have enough division as it is. Um, okay. Barakallahu fikum inshallah wa sallallahu ta'ala rasulihi sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in Jazakumullah khairat Sheikh Hamza um for those of you who uh, do not know, you can listen to many of his lectures online on his SoundCloud. I believe his ID is H Makbul H M A Q B U L. He has lots of lecture series on there as well that are, um, you will find very interesting, inshallah. Just a few announcements while we have everyone here. Uh, firstly, our annual three day retreat will take place on the first weekend of May. That's Friday, the 4th, 5th, and 6th on Sunday. Mark your calendars and be sure to attend. You can register online on our website. As usual, tomorrow morning we will have our Saturday morning lecture followed by our community breakfast for the brothers. Be sure to attend that. Uh, summer programs and our full-time programs at the New Intensive Takmil Hibs programs. Registration is now open. Summer Hibs, Summer Arabic. So please go to our website and register for that. And lastly, our seminary open house for uh, is on Saturday, April seventh. Join us to learn about the different programs we have to offer. Inshallah. Jazakumullah khairan. Wassalamu alaikum. <laughs>